All right, well, a while ago, I think six or seven years ago, we started this tradition of hearing a biographical sermon on Reformation Sunday. The biblical warrant for that, for this practice, I'm hearing a bit of feedback. Am, am I the only one that's hearing that? Oh, you're working on it? Okay. All right, just keep talking. All right. So um, the biblical warrant for this practice of, of doing a biographical sermon once a year comes from Hebrews chapter 12. You remember that, that verse, that scene where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so the image there is this, this cloud of witnesses. And this is, it can be tempting to think that the cloud of witnesses are kind of like in a stadium and they're all watching us. They're witnessing us. But that's not the image. That's not the idea. The idea of this cloud of witnesses is that they lived their lives in such a way that their lives gave witness to the glory of God to the truth of the gospel. Their lives were a witness to that, and then those lives form a cloud around us. And so we too are called to live lives that give witness to the glory of God and the truth of the gospel. And, and taking a careful look at the lives of those saints who have gone before us and lived well, that can encourage us in our race to run with endurance. That can help us to get our eyes up off of ourselves and our circumstances and onto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so over the years, we've, once a year, we've, we've learned lessons. We've looked at the lives of, we looked at Martin Luther, we looked at the life of John Calvin, we looked at the life of William Tyndall, Bible translator, we looked at the life of John Patton, missionary to the New Hebrides. A couple of years ago, we looked at the life of Lilius Trotter. She was an artist, a painter, and also a missionary to Africa. Last year, remember, we looked at Darlene Deibler. She was a prisoner of war during World War II in Asia and lived a life of faithful testimony as a prisoner in a Japanese prison camp. Today, we're looking at the life of Helen Rosevere. Helen Rosevere. Now, every year that I do this, I link the sermon, this biographical sermon, with a text of Scripture. It's important that we stay rooted in the text, in the Bible. And so this year, the Scripture that I'm linking with Helen's life is Philippians in chapter 3 and verses 7 to 11. So if you want to turn there, Philippians 3 and verses 7 to 11. A familiar passage. Paul writes, but, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. 
I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's ask the Lord for his help. Holy Father, thank you for this chance to look at this passage of Scripture and to see in the life of one of your servants how this passage was lived out. We recognize that Helen Rosevere was not a perfect person, that none of us are, and yet you have been pleased throughout the history of the church to use people to accomplish your purposes and to glorify your name. So help us to learn the lessons that you have for us. And please shape and fashion us into the men and women and young people that you want us to be. Amen. Well, Helen Rosevere lived a long and, and good and faithful life. She was born in 1925, and she passed away in 2016, not that long ago. And she maintained a, a speaking and writing ministry right up until the end of her life. Helen was raised in a Christian home where they attended in England and, and, and uh, they attended a very formal church, okay? Whatever you picture with that, the kind where they have the set liturgy every Sunday and they do the incense and they do the kneeling and the standing and the sitting throughout the service. It was a church like that. She says that she enjoyed that, um, but by her own testimony, she was not a Christian during that time because even though she enjoyed uh, the services at church, she never, she says, she never repented of her sins. She never placed her trust in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins. And therefore, by her own testimony, she was not a Christian during those years. She was religious in the sense that she got a good feeling from thinking about God. She got a good feeling from doing nice things for other people. She was religious. Uh, but she did not experience the that deep and profound satisfaction and peace that comes from knowing God personally. So in order to fill that restlessness in her heart, she did what so many people do, in, in that, and she tried to find distractions. She tried to find uh, an escape from thinking about those heavy, burdensome things of life, and for her that was finding escape in the movies. She would go to the movies regularly as a young person, sometimes even seven times a week she was going to the movies. And so this is probably early on in the sermon a good point to stop the sermon and pause and consider a point of application for our own lives as we learn from Helen's life. Ask yourself, I'll ask myself, is there anything in our lives that's causing us to waste the precious hours that God has given us? Is there anything in your life that's causing you to take your eyes off the main thing and put it on something else, even if that other thing is a perfectly fine and good thing? Are you, are you allowing yourself to be distracted from that which is most important? And if so, well then maybe we need to think about recalibrating our use of time. I read in a different book this week, I read this. It said, Your witness for Christ ultimately requires you to know Christ better than you know the world. And this means that you should be in the Bible more than you're on the internet. Those are challenging words. I'm sure Helen Rosevere would agree with those words. And you and I would do well to take them to heart. 
after I read that sentence, I, I did a quick calculation in my own mind and realized that the ratio of Bible to Internet in my own life is, is off a bit. And so I vowed to make some changes. Well, anyways, as a child, Helen is uh, she's intelligent, ambitious, successful in school. She gets uh, accepted to Cambridge University when she's that age. And, but once she goes there, she finds that the academic work is fine, no problem. But she finds that, um, just like so many students their first year away from home, she feels scared, she feels alone, she feels intimidated, she feels kind of on the outside. And what happens is a fellow student, a Christian, reaches out to her, kind of out of the blue, uh, this, this Student leaves a note in her room. It says, you're welcome to come and join me in my room tonight at 8 o'clock. And Helen is so happy that, that someone reaches out with this very human relational expression of kindness. And so she goes to this student's room. They spend the evening together. They talk about all kinds of things. They bond. And uh, Helen writes, I know that I slept well that night with a quiet feeling that I now had a friend. Following that, further friendships come with other warm and faithful Christians, fellow students. And then it's those fellow student Christians who end up being her doorway to come into faith herself. The Lord drew her to faith through the doorway of Christians who lovingly reached out to her. And so there's another point of application for you and I this morning. So many people that you meet in this world... Despite what they look like on the outside, despite how competent they look like on the outside, they're struggling with loneliness and depression on the inside. And one of the kindest ways that we can show the love of Christ to others is to simply reach out to someone and extend the gift of friendship. Everyone is longing for friendship. We were made to be in relationship. And the simple act of extending the gift of friendship to someone who needs it that's one of the most basic ways that we extend the love of Christ to others as Christians. Maybe the biggest, most important thing that you'll do in your whole life is bake cookies for a neighbor and bring them over. And then as the relationship grows, tell that person about the love of Jesus Christ. That's what the world needs. Well, Helen began attending these uh, prayer meetings and Bible studies. She really enjoyed it. Uh, but she writes that even though she enjoyed these Bible studies, enjoyed the fellowship with other Christians, she still felt some inner fear, some, some reserve that kept me back from definitely identifying myself with these new Christian friends. I always remain just a little bit apart from them. She says, and yet, despite being a little hesitant, I kept being curiously drawn to these people who seemed to have something that I lacked and that I wanted. She writes, I began to study scripture on my own and to desire, the desire was born in me to know the one who had written the Bible. And I could see that these other people had something that I did not. And so she goes through this period where she experiences this conflict between her old church and her old understanding of what religion was all about and these new people who seem to have something that wasn't present, at least in her experience, in the old church. And she felt like that old church, what she associated with what religion is all about, felt very stiff, felt very formal, felt like the emphasis was all on duty and what we do for God. And, and this new church was full of people who had joy and peace. 
And she's trying to figure out what is the difference there. And so she goes and meets with a leader from her old church to talk it over. And she writes, the accent in that conversation was all about works. Regular attendance at church, full confession, obedience to church discipline, receiving grace only through the divinely appointed means of the sacraments from the hands of a priest. And in response, all I had was the indefinable realization that something was missing, something was wrong. Surely this is not all that there is to understand about God. And then she remembered a sermon that she had heard from 1 Timothy, a sermon that taught that there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. And she felt like somehow the truth of that didn't line up with what she was experiencing at her old church. And so the week after Christmas, she goes to this week-long meeting for Christian women to gather and worship and study the Bible. And, and she felt, again, out of place to be there, kind of like an outside, not sure if this is really the group that she's part of. And one night she stays up late preparing for a Bible study meeting the next day. She stays up reading the book of Romans. As she's walking back to her room, she realizes she has stayed up all night. It's now 6.30 in the morning. She's been up reading her Bible all night. She writes, I gripped the basic essential truth of man's need and his lost state of sin and depravity and of God's provision to meet that need through the death of Christ. She says, I cried out to God, if there even was a God, I didn't know, but I cried out that he would meet with me and make himself utterly real and vital to me. And I raised my eyes and through my tears I read a text printed on the wall. It said, be still and know that I am God. That was all. And immediately the burden fell away in a moment. Be still and know. Be still and know the God whose name is I Am. Stop striving to understand Him only with the intellect and just be still and know Him. And in that moment, a great flood of peace and joy and happiness flooded in. And I know that He and I entered into a new relationship that day. For years, the Holy Spirit had been opening my eyes to a sense of sin and convicting me of my unworthiness before a holy God, but now came the wonderful gift of repentance. God poured out His grace and forgiveness in cleansing from all the uncleanness of sin and in revealing at this time the amazing wonder of the friendship of Christ. And I went downstairs and I was walking on air and others could see it and they said my face was shining and they knew that I was different. As she went on and she shared with them what had happened to her. And her teacher wrote down Philippians in chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul writing that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And the teacher said to Helen, she said, Tonight you've entered into the first part of that verse that I may know Jesus. But this is only the beginning. And you have now a long journey ahead of you. And my prayer for you is that you will go all the way through this verse and know the power of his resurrection as well. And maybe, God willing, one day, perhaps, you will share in the fellowship of his sufferings as well. And with that, Helen decided that she would study medicine and become a medical missionary. She finished school. She became a candidate at a missions organization called WEC. WEC, that stands for World Evangelization for Christ. 
She, she went there to be evaluated whether or not she was called to the mission field and also to figure out where, what mission field, where to go. And what the country that kept coming up was the Congo in Africa. Currently, that, that country is referred to as the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And it kept coming up. WEC already had missionaries involved in Congo, but they, there was an urgent need for medically trained missionaries, which is exactly what she was now. So she thought, she, she thinks that she's going to be going to the Congo. But one day as she's doing her chores, she accidentally overhears a staff meeting. Uh, and the staff at WEC happened to be talking about her and evaluating her and evaluating her fitness for missions. These are some of the words that she overheard. Proud, always knowing better than the others, unable to be told things or warned or criticized, difficult to live with. She felt totally crushed. <laughs> she, uh, she, she thought that she, her, her all hope was gone, that she had wrecked it because of her own character flaws. She was not going to be able to be a missionary, not going to be able to be useful to God the way she thought she was, and she's just completely crushed. And so she goes outside to do laundry because that was her assigned job, and she's kind of sulking, and she, she has 16 bright white sheets hanging on the laundry line, when the line snaps and the sheets fall into the mud. And the staff that has just said all these things about her being proud and hard to work with and all the rest of it are watching this happen through the window. And they see that the line is snapped and the sheets have fallen into the mud and so they come outside to help her. She doesn't know that they're behind her. She's looking at this mess and she... She's just, she just snaps. She's had enough. It's all too ridiculous. And she shouts out, Hallelujah! And she starts laughing. Just because what more could go wrong? And the staff is outside behind her watching this. And they see it. And they realize maybe there's something more to this woman than we thought that there was. If this woman has that kind of sense of humor in the face of that sort of frustration. And has that much humility that she's able to even laugh at herself then maybe some of the concerns we had about her character were misplaced. And they decided, in fact, to send her to the Congo. And maybe now is a good time to pause because there's another important lesson here, right? And the lesson is this. God is sovereign and his will will be done. Just be reminded of that, right? God had called Helen to the Congo and so to the Congo she would go, character flaws and all. Right? And the WEC board needed somehow to see this other side of Helen. They had seen some of the bad things about her, and those were real. They didn't missee those. Those were there. But they needed to see the other side of her. And, of course, God in his sovereignty exactly arranged such that they would see what they needed to see in order to get her to the Congo. And I think we can just take a moment to remind ourselves that God, in fact, has plans for you and I as well. And we can submit to his plans and we can rest peacefully knowing that God is good and God is sovereign and he's going to get his will done one way or another. All right, well, Helen finally gets to Africa as a, as a missionary nurse. Uh, the, the reality she experiences once she's there is just a constant stream of heartbreaking medical needs. She's there to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and to do medical work, and she's just overwhelmed with the medical work side of it. She has no helper. There's another couple, a missionary couple there, but that's it. And she's just thrown into it. 
performing surgery. There's, there's no doctor to do that, so it's on her learning as she goes. In the midst of all that, what happens is the Holy Spirit just completely blows through that place and revival comes to the town. Right? You've heard stories about revival from church history. That's what happened here. Helen writes, meetings were alive with a new power. The building was crowded as never before. Some people were shaking violently. Others were crying out for mercy. Others were singing and praising the Lord. Hour after hour in the church, on the compound, at home, men and women confessing sins, seeking forgiveness, cleansing, going away full of a mighty joy, faces radiant with a newfound peace, Jesus Christ being glorified in our midst, sin being put away, many praying for the unsaved and going out in teams to witness and preach the gospel. I'll tell you just one, there's loads, I'll tell you just one faith-building story from this time when this revival is sweeping through uh, where Helen's doing her work. She writes, One night I had worked hard to help a mother in the labor ward, but in spite of all we could do, the mother died, leaving us with a tiny premature baby and with a crying two-year-old daughter. We would have difficulty keeping that baby alive. We had no incubator, we had no electricity to run an incubator, and we had no special feeding facilities. Uh, And even though we lived on the equator, nights were often chilly with treacherous drafts. And so a student midwife went for the box that we had for such babies and for the cotton wool that the baby would be wrapped in. Another went and stoked up the fire in order to fill a hot water bottle. She came back in distress telling me that in filling the bottle it had burst. Rubber perishes easily in these tropic climates. And she says that was the last hot water bottle that we had. Well, as in the West, it's no good crying over spilt milk. In Central America, it's no good crying over a burst water bottle. They do not grow on trees. There are no drugstores down the forest pathways. All right, I said. Put the baby as near to the fire as you safely can, and then you sleep between the baby and the door in order to protect it from any of the drafts. Your job tonight is to keep that baby warm. The following noon, as I did most days, I went to have prayers with many of the orphanage, the children living in the orphanage. I gave the youngsters various suggestions of things to pray about, and I told them about the tiny baby. I explained our problem about keeping the baby warm enough and mentioning about the burst hot water bottle and that the baby could die if it got a chill. And I also told them about the two-year-old sister crying because her mother had died. During the time of prayer, a 10-year-old girl, Ruth, prayed with the usual blunt consciousness of our African children. Please, God, she prayed, send us a water bottle. It'll be no good tomorrow, God, because then the baby will be dead. So please, God, send it this afternoon. I gasped inwardly at the audacity of the prayer. And then she added, by way of corollary, and while you're about it, God, would you please send a dolly for the little girl so that she'll know you love her? As so often it is with children's prayers, I was put on the spot. Could I honestly say amen to that? I just honestly did not believe that God could do this. Oh yes, I know that God can do everything. The Bible says so, but but seriously, there are limits, right? The only way God could answer this particular prayer would be by sending a parcel from the homeland. I had been in Africa for almost four years by this time, and I had never, ever once received a parcel from home. 
in four years. Anyway, if anyone did send a parcel, why in the world would they include a hot water bottle? We live on the equator. <laughs> well, halfway through the afternoon, while I was teaching in the nurses' training school, a message was sent that there was a car at my front door. By the time that I reached home, the car had gone, but there on the veranda was a large 22-pound parcel. I felt tears prick my eyes. I could not open the parcel alone, and so I sent for the orphanage children. A bold move. Together, we pulled off the string, carefully undoing the knot. We folded the paper, taking care not to tear it. Excitement was building. Some 30 or 40 pairs of eyes focused on the large cardboard box. From the top, I lifted out brightly colored knitted jerseys, and eyes sparkled as I gave them out. Then there were knitted bandages for the leprosy patients, and the children began to get a little bored. Next came a box of raisins. That would make a nice batch of buns for the weekend. As I put my hand in again, I felt, could it be, I grasped it and pulled it out, yes, a brand new rubber hot water bottle. I started crying. I had not asked God to send it. I had not truly believed that God would send it. But Ruth was in the front row of the children, and she rushed forward crying out, If God sent the water bottle, he must have sent the dolly too. Rummaging down to the bottom of the box, she pulled out the small, beautifully dressed dolly. And her eyes shone. She never once doubted. And looking at me, she asked, Can I go over with you? And can I give the dolly to that little girl so that she can know that Jesus really loves her? That parcel had been on the way to us, I found out later, for five whole months, packed up by my former Sunday school class, whose leader had heard and obeyed God's prompting to send a hot water bottle even to the equator. And one of the girls in the class had put in a dolly for an African child. Five months earlier, in answer to the believing prayer of a 10-year-old girl to bring it that afternoon. Well, there's another obvious point of application, hey? Pray bold, childlike prayers. And believe that you are praying to a powerful God who hears and answers the believing prayers of his people. So often I wonder if the reason we do not have is because we do not ask. All right, well, these were very exciting times for Helen. There was always work to be done, spiritual work, but more often than not, to her own frustration, she was just constantly in demand to do medical work. Her board determined that what she needed to do was start training locals uh, to be nurses and midwives so that they can help carry the load of the medical work. And so they launched a medical school. They invited students. Many enrolled. But they had no buildings yet because they had no money yet because they hadn't received any tuition yet. And so all the students arrived and they gathered. She, she, she took them to an open field. She said, here we are. And one of the students said, well, where are the classrooms? And she said, there. And she pointed to nothing. And another student said, well, where are the dorms? And, and, and Helen said, right there. And she pointed again to nothing. And she said, here's what will happen. You build and I teach. 
And so that's what they did. For the first two months, that's all they did was build dorms and classrooms. And then Helen taught, taught them how to be nurses and midwives. At this time, Helen is just completely overworked, completely overworked and overwhelmed. And as a result, she has no joy at all in her personal life. She's exhausted. She's depressed. She feels like a failure. Anytime there's a failure, like a, like a medical failure, if she can't save someone, or there was a moral failure on... Uh, one, with one of the students on the, on the, uh, the, at the medical training facility, or if she has her own failure, like uh, having a short temper, which is something she struggled with her whole life, she would just beat herself up over these failures. And then she starts having conflict with other leaders and other people who are in ministry with her. And then she starts doubting her faith, not, not doubting Jesus, that he's the son of God, but doubting her own trust in him. In that one particular meeting, she's teaching the Bible, and again, the Holy Spirit just seems to descend upon the group and bring conviction and confession and repentance, but her heart just feels cold. And she thinks, how is it possible that God is using me like this when I feel nothing in my own heart? And as she runs out of the meeting and goes back to her house, a local pastor uh, is bicycling through and, and sees her and hears what happened and invites her, says, right now, just go pack a bag right now and just come to my house and stay with me and my wife. Just, just recover. You're not in a good place. And so Helen does that. And she goes and stays with this pastor and his wife for a week. She writes, he helped me to unburden my heart and to reveal all the rottenness and the sense of failure, all the fears and criticisms and pride and selfishness. And he helped me to look away from myself and towards the Christ of Calvary and it's then that a great calm came to me. And the minute the people from her own village saw her returning, they could immediately tell something has happened. They saw the light of happiness in her eyes. And they celebrated and started praising the Lord. And they said, for the past four years, every, ever since that first revival, we've been praying daily for you and that the Lord would do the same in your heart that he's done in ours. Isn't that beautiful? She went there to serve them. And yet they're praying for her that she'll experience what they've experienced. There's another lesson for us tucked in there, isn't there? Have the humility to stop carrying around your failures with you all the time. Unburden yourself before the Lord. None of us is perfect. Not Helen and not me and not you. When we walk around carrying our regrets with us, lamenting our regrets, refusing to cast them on the Lord, we make ourselves the focus of our lives instead of lifting our eyes up and looking at Jesus and taking his yoke upon us. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, and he will give us rest if we will let him. Well, eventually what happens, and I'll wrap it up with this, a bloody civil war comes to the Congo. Along with that war comes, predictably, just a dynamic where there's a hatred and suspicion of, of whites, the whites who are there. And so even amongst her students now, they begin to resent her skin color. She's white, they're black. They start to say, why are you the teacher and us the students? And so she takes a lot of hostility from them. I, I won't recount all of the details of her hardships, but she ends up being, being looted and stolen from. She ends up being threatened. Uh, and att she's attempted to be poisoned, although a dog ate it instead of her. Uh, women get pulled out of the maternity ward in the middle of the night. Girls get stolen, given to soldiers. Truckloads of teens are taken and sent to the front lines, never to return. In the midst of all of that, 
Helen could have left. Helen had the option to leave and go back to safety, but she chose to stay. She writes, In the past, missionaries came to Africa knowing that they were under dire threat of dying of tropical diseases or wild animals. Now the dangers are different, but the gospel is the same, and the Lord is the same, and he is still worthy of any sacrifice, and therefore I stay. She was eventually captured and tortured and held captive by rebel soldiers for five months. She writes, the soldiers came, beams of light stabbed the night, and I was alone. They found me. They dragged me to my feet. They struck me over the head and shoulders and flung me to the ground. They kicked me, dragged me to my feet, only to strike me again. The sickening, searing pain of a broken tooth, a mouthful of sticky blood, my glasses gone, beyond sense, numb with horror and unknown fear, driven, dragged, pushed back to my own house, yelled at, insulted, cursed. And a wild cry, the wild cry of my tortured heart was, my God, my God, why have you forgotten me? Why have you forsaken me? Alone, I felt so alone. But then suddenly, Christ was there. No vision, no voice, but his very real presence. A phrase came to my mind, led as a lamb to the slaughter. And I saw, as it were, the events of the Garden of Gethsemane, the trial scene, the scourging of Christ, the long march out to Calvary, bearing the cross to the crucifixion. And her testimony, what she writes, is that right then, in the midst of all the fear and in the midst of all the pain, which were very real, was the presence and peace of God that passes understanding, right there in that moment of suffering. Which brings us to one more lesson. Sometimes it's in the moments of our deepest suffering that we draw closest to God. I'm sure that many people in this room could attest to the reality of that truth in your own life. When se things seem the darkest and the hardest and the, we're suffering the most, sometimes it's in those moments that we experience God nearest and deepest. Finally, Helen is rescued from her captors. She's sent home. She's, she's, she's home for a while and recovering from the shock and the war eventually ends and then the letters start coming in from the Congo Letters that say, all the church money's been taken, all the chairs, all the tables have been destroyed, but we have one piece of wealth left. We still have our salvation. Please return and help us as soon as possible. Would you go? Would you go back into that? She did. She did. And there's lots more to tell about her life, but we don't have time this morning. You can read her book. She's actually written lots of books. Uh, the, the book about her life is called Give Me This Mountain. It's, it's beautiful. We have a few copies at the Welcome Center if you'd like to read more. There's a sequel, a, a part two of her autobiography called He Gave Us a Valley, which is, tells part two of her life. We also have some copies of that at the Welcome Table if you'd like to read it. Um, also, you can find her on YouTube. There's talks she gave that are on, that are on YouTube if you just want to hear what she sounds like and hear what she has to say. So let me sum up what we've learned from looking at the life and daily faithfulness of Helen Rosevere. Her lifelong desire was to know Christ, to experience his power, to share in his sufferings, and she got her wish. So point number one, keep your eyes focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make him the priority of your life, and don't let anything else distract you from pursuing him with all your heart.
Point number two, show the love of Christ to others by extending the simple gift of friendship to a lonely person. There's no telling how God will use that. Point number three, remember that God is sovereign and he's loving and he is actively orchestrating the circumstances of your life to accomplish his purposes in your life. Point number four, pray boldly. Believe that our God is a God who delights to hear and to answer the prayers of his people. Point number five, don't continually beat yourself up over past failures, but have the humility to lay down both your victories and your failures, both your strengths and your weaknesses at the foot of the cross and find rest for your soul. Point six, remember that God uses our suffering to draw us near to him. That doesn't mean suffering's good. It's not. But it means God can use it for his purposes to draw us near to him. And finally, here's one final lesson I'll close with. If you want to know Jesus Christ and the power of his resurrection, then engage in small daily acts of obedience to him and dying to yourself. That was a lesson that Helen learned and lived out over and over and over again in her life. I'll close with this one example. Early on during her time at WEC, she's preparing for the mission field. Uh, her, her chore that day is to wash the cement floor of the women's bathroom. And uh, so she go, there's two toilets in there. She goes to the first one. She scrubs it out, makes it look all good, washes the floor, goes to the second one, is working on the second one. While she's working on it, someone with very muddy shoes <laughs> walks into the restroom and uses the first one. And now it's all dirty again. And so she finishes the second one. She has to go back to the first one and do it again. And while she's doing that, sure enough, someone comes in and uses the second one. That happens again, over and over again, back and forth. She's cleaning and recleaning and recleaning. Finally, she just feels so frustrated, so angry, she starts crying. And Elizabeth, the woman who's in charge and who had given her that task, is watching, comes in and is watching and asks her, what, what, what are you so upset about? And Helen explains what's been going on with the getting dirty and back and forth. And, and Elizabeth says, well, who are, you, who are you scrubbing the floor for? And uh, Helen says, well, for you, of course. You're the one that gave me the job. And Elizabeth says, no, 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 my dear. If you're doing it for me, you might as well go home because you're never going to satisfy me. You are doing this for the Lord. And he saw it the first time you cleaned it. And that there, that's tomorrow's dirt. See, each day we're called to do what we're called to do that day. We focus on today's dirt today and tomorrow's dirt tomorrow. And by God's grace, as we do that daily faithfulness, we'll know God more and more and we'll experience the power of his resurrection and we'll be able to look back on a life lived well to the glory of God. Let's pray. Holy Father, thank you for the simple daily faithfulness of your servant Helen and the ways that you took that and used it in all kinds of ways to bless so many lives and to accomplish so much for your purposes. And I pray for each one of us. I don't know what the calling is on each of us, but I do know that we're all called to daily faithfulness, to daily obedience in small but faithful ways. And so I pray that you'd help us to have our eyes open and our hearts and hands ready to serve and be faithful with the opportunities that you give us. In Christ's name, amen.